Okay, let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can come as your people before you to your very presence and wait in anticipation for you to come and meet us, to speak these words and truths and press them into our hearts, to give us faith and to deepen our love for you so that we who have been brought from death to life can engage this city to build a home, a kingdom, where your will would be done here in Washington as it is now being done in heaven. To that end, we pray for your grace. Bless the preaching of the word. Give us faith now in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing our series, Placemaking, and if you've been with us, you know that in the past several weeks, we looked at God's good design. Uh, last week, Dr. Red talked about the temple, the sanctuary that was Eden. And here we come to the great tragedy. This is where everything goes wrong, okay? And uh, in the midst of this very sad and tragic chapter, we are met with grace because the Lord that speaks a word of judgment also speaks a word of promise, of grace, and we find hope here as God's people who are then called to continue this work of placemaking today here in Washington. And so we want to look at this passage and see how the Lord redeems even this chapter. Has anyone here read the book The Kite Runner by uh, Khalid Hosseini? Anyone here? Okay, that's what I figure, most of you. This is Washington, right? <laughs> I actually really enjoy this book. Uh, I think he gets a good grasp on what we consider to be theology of place. All throughout the book, he is able to tie together the connection between a place and its people, right? You remember this. And these characters that flee Afghanistan continue to, in many ways, embody the country, okay? For example, Amir, the main character, is an Afghan boy, and his father, Baba, they flee because of Soviet invasion, and they make their way to California. But even though they you know, thrive in this new environment, new country, and enjoy the positive things about life in America, they can't shake off the fact that they're exiles, especially the dead, right? He struggles to fit, and he always lives with a heavy burden of longing for that which was lost. Later in the novel, we're introduced to a different character who's somewhat related to Amir, and uh, after he survives this near-death experience, he says to Amir, I want father and mother. I want to play with Rahim Khan in the garden. I want to live in our house again. I want my old life back. And in the silence, Amir thinks to himself, your old life, mine too. I played in that same garden. I lived in that same house but the grass is dead. Again, talking about Afghanistan, the country is dead. And a stranger's Jeep is parked in the driveway of our house. A foreigner has come and invaded what is used to be our place, pissing oil all over the asphalt, the chemical warfare that destroyed the country. Our old life is gone, Soreb, and everyone in it is either dead or dying. It's just you and me, just you and me. These words are reminiscent of the story of Adam and Eve after the fall. Now, Husseini, who's 
a secular Muslim, is familiar with the creation story. And he knows that there is no going back for all of us, not just these two characters, but for all of us, because home doesn't exist anymore. And we kind of understand this as Washingtonians, don't we? Many of us are transplants. We came from somewhere else. We left home to come. And you remember the cognitive dissonance when you first uh, landed in the city, right? Uh, whoa, it's a lot bigger than I thought. Or there are a lot more traffic lights here than I expected. A lot more of these circles. What are these things that you're supposed to drive around? But all of us, at a deeper level, experience alienation. Here is a quote I, I thought was really fascinating by Ava Hoffman. This comes by way of Pastor Tim Keller, and this is what she writes. Since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, is there anyone who does not in some way feel like an exile? Those of us who have been estranged from literal home get deep nostalgia for it. We say to ourselves, if I can get back to it, to that place with those people, then the emptiness I'm feeling, this dissatisfaction I'm feeling will be healed. That deep nostalgia we have for these physical places, if we actually get back to them, we discover that we're not completely satisfied by it. And she goes on to say that the physical homelessness that we experience as displaced and alienated people signifies something deeper. We are, she says, and I thought this was worth gold, ejected from our authentic selves. We are ejected from our authentic selves. The ideal sense of belonging, a tuning with others and ourselves eludes us. And I think she is right. Every one of us here, whether you're from this area or not, we are all exiles. And our sense of displacement and alienation, it goes much deeper than we think. And here in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible explains why. Let's look at two things together in our time tonight. First is alienation. After Genesis 1 and 2, you would think that nothing could go wrong. God spoke reality into existence in chapter 1, and he pronounced it as good. And in chapter 2, God spoke to Adam and Eve, placed them in this perfect, beautiful garden, gave them everything that they could ever want, including the gift of himself. But when we get to chapter 3, boy, things go wrong real quick. First of all, there is the presence of evil in the garden, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. And the servant, serpent begins with a question. Notice this tactic. He's not wearing an outfit with the flames of hell in the backdrop, trying to scare Eve to disobedience. No, he begins with an innocent question. Did God really say? Can you help me out here? Did, did God really say? And the moment he realizes that she is not sure what he said and that there's a desire for the fruit, he goes in for the kill. Okay. This chapter is filled with irony. Why is there a presence of evil in the sanctuary, a holy place? As we see later, when the temple is built, Nothing sinful or defiled is allowed in the presence of God, and yet here is the 
evil. That's literally the Hebrew reading. The evil is in the presence of God. And of all the places in the garden, it could have taken place at a creek, a lake, a green pasture, flower bed, whatever. But this conversation actually happens at a tree. G.K. Beale, a renowned theologian, argues in his book, A New Testament Biblical Theology, which is a real tome. You lift that 10 times, you're going to feel it in your arms, okay? And he says that in the Old Testament, a tree is a place of judgment. We see this to be true in the book of Judges where Deborah, Israel judge, judges under a tree. Later on in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And we all know that Jesus died on a tree, the cross, where he bore God's judgment. You see, as God's vice regent, Adam should have judged the serpent right there and then and ruled over it. But instead, based on the reading of this chapter, he is standing around. And when offered... He ate the fruit. After Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, it was just as the serpent promised for a little bit. Take it, eat it, and their eyes were open. They saw what they did not see before. They gained knowledge. They learned something that they didn't know before. And they realized they were naked. And you're supposed to get the irony here, right? As you're following the original story, you're like, okay, what's going to happen? <gasps> what? Their eyes were open? How can this be? And they gain knowledge? What knowledge? And, it's, and they were naked. What? <laughs> really? They were promised knowledge, status, and privilege to be like God. Yet, they discover a world of shame, vulnerability, Manipulation, fear, alienation, pain, frustration, and death. Let's unpack this a little bit more. What does it mean for Adam and Eve to be alienated and to live into this now, this new reality? Well, first, they were physically displaced, as we see. The original language shows the unique relationship between Adam, Adam, the man, and Adama, the earth, the land. Adam was made from it, and he was made for it. And this connection between a place and people run throughout the scripture. In the Abrahamic blessing in Genesis chapter 12, God promises to bless Abraham with two things. Remember? People and place. And later on, when Israel persists in a rebellion, God curses them by removing the people from land, the Babylonian exile. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he preached a very simple sermon. It, I'm sure it was a 35-minute sermon, right? Maybe two, three points with an illustration here and there. But basically, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what constitutes a kingdom? People and land. And when this project, placemaking, is finally complete, and God creates a home, a permanent home for us, it would be the uniting of people and place, the way it was meant to be from the very beginning. They lost it. Not only that, they were relationally estranged. Man blames God, and then he blames the woman, and the woman's like, wait, what? How dare you throw me under the bus? And she blames the serpent, and the serpent's like, wait, I was possessed. I don't know what happened to me, right? 
there's a lot of finger pointing going on here. Again, Khalid Husseini says this about this account. He says, like a compass needle that always points north, a man's accusing finger always finds a woman. Okay? You have to know this about the nature of sin. It is never content. It never ends with blame displacement. As James later writes, that it will continue to grow and mature, and when it gives birth, it will give birth to hatred, injustice, abuse, neglect, discrimination, racism, and much more. They were emotionally and psychologically broken. Adam and Eve, for the first time, experienced fear, anxiety, and shame. I mean, can you imagine? We read through this account without a second thought here, but they're experiencing things that they've never experienced before. And they're trying to wrap their mind around this new feeling. Like, what is this that I'm feeling? And they're trying to put a finger, what? It was a whole new world for them. Vocationally, things got really difficult and frustrating. Okay? Work is not the result of the fall. I know we all think it, but it is not. Work was actually a blessing. Okay? Adam was called as a gardener to work Eden. Work was a source of joy, dignity, and purpose for Adam and Eve. But after Genesis chapter 3, it became a burden source of pain and frustration. Spiritually, they were separated from God. Adam and Eve, as we heard last week, customarily ran to greet God when he showed up at the cool of the night. But now, in their fallen state, they recoil and run and hide from him. They are cut off from God, who is life, and therefore now they must face death. Verse 19, can you imagine Adam hearing these words? For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What does that mean? But this is the new reality. They lost it all. The good world that God created and gave to them, they lost all of it. They're strangers, in their, they're strangers now in their own home. So what did they do? They know something has gone wrong. They can feel it, Right? So they tried, verse 7 says, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is more than just a simple covering to hide their nakedness. What they're doing here is they're trying to recreate what was lost. They're trying to recreate Eden. You know the saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Just like our first parents, you and I, we do the same thing. We do our best to recreate Eden. We exercise, right? We diet, we run, we, we lift weights to hold off the effects of father time. We decorate our home, right? We put on new paint. We, we make new flower arrangements to create beauty. We work hard to provide a sense of security. We prioritize relationships create some resemblance of intimacy. All of these things are efforts to recreate what was lost. And let me say to our non-Christian friends here tonight, the Bible affirms your longing for these things. 
The Bible affirms your longing for what is good, true, and right. Your desire for beauty, your desire for security, intimacy are all good things. Why? Because God put them there. And God is not a fraud, C.S. Lewis. Okay? He did not put those desires there just so he can watch you suffer. No, he put those desires in you because he intends on satisfying those desires. He has this great quote, if you find in yourself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. All our efforts to recreate Eden, however, they fall short. Okay? Because these things, they cannot replace God. No amount of finite things can add up to infinite God. Okay? But even if we could somehow recreate beauty, security, and intimacy of Eden, we still have one thing that we can't solve, which is death. You can make death an abstraction, talk about it, you know, sort of hold it at arm's distance, but you're not going to solve death. You can cover it up cosmetically, but Father Time is undefeated and gravity is pretty dang strong. If it hasn't gotten to you yet, it will, okay? Someone once said, in the face of death, man's pretense to self-sufficiency crumbles. Here's a thought. As long as death exists, you and I will never be truly home. We have an intruder in the house that we cannot defeat. This is what it means to be alienated. It happened in Genesis chapter 3. And so every day since Genesis chapter 3, we've been carrying with us longing for home. But if death is an intruder that we can't kick out, and we continue to find in this world longings that go unmet, what hope is there for us as God's people? And what does placemaking look like? For God's people who are called together as a church in this city, what hope is there? Let's talk about our second point, restoration. Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, where sin abounds, grace abounds more, and that is absolutely true, even in Genesis chapter 3. A careful reading here shows that God not only speaks judgment, but he makes promises. For God's people, judgment and death do not have the final word. God does. He speaks a word of kind promise to us. God's grace is seen in at least four ways. Let's look at it together briefly. First, God gives Adam and Eve the gift of life. Notice, he does not execute judgment on them for their sin, as he said. Instead, he prolongs their life, and with life, a chance to repent and believe. Second, God promises the gift of children. Yes, the pain of childbearing is multiplied, but the gift remains. And it's a good thing because it's ultimately through the line of this woman that the Lord's champion will come. Third, God promises provision. Work will be painful and frustrating, but ground will yield its fruit to provide for Adam and Eve. All of this is God's grace. God could have simply spoke a word of judgment and said, that's it, you're done, forget you. 
And even if he prolonged their life, he didn't have to give them the gift of children or even food, but he does. Let's unpack this last point a little bit more. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice, first of all, that this is something that the Lord would do. Salvation belongs to our God. It is not up to us, our wisdom, our resource, our talents, our gifts, but it is the Lord who would do this. He initiates the great rescue, and with a promise, he will accomplish what Adam, Eve, and none of us here could. But the scope of the problem is much bigger than the serpent, isn't it? It's great that this champion will come and crush the head of the serpent, but how about everything else that was lost in, the, in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, right? What about all this other stuff that we just talked about? I believe God will restore everything. And he sort of hints at that here in verse 21. And the Lord Verse 21 says, God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. God sacrificed an animal and made garments out of them to cover their nakedness and shame. The animal garment obviously serves a better function than a leaf. It's not as itchy, and it's a lot more durable than the leaf. But a lot more is going on here than meets the eye. Later in Isaiah 61, verse 10, this is what prophet Isaiah says. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in the Lord, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The word righteousness, in particular the Hebrew word, has this meaning of making things right. It's not just justice or moral upstanding as the New Testament Greek word for righteousness sometimes carries. It is holistic. It's the reversal of the curse. It's living into the shalom. And so you see what God is doing. As he sacrifices an animal and makes garments for the man and his wife, that is foreshadowing of how God will make right what, was made, what went wrong in Genesis chapter 3. In other words, God will not only send a champion to crush the head of the serpent, but he will restore our home, Eden itself. He will restore relational intimacy that was lost. Our work will become joy once again. It will provide meaning and dignity like it was meant to be, that he will reconcile us to himself, and death will be no more. But how would this happen? Verse 24, we get this interesting cherubim thing that Scott talked about last week, and I, I was hoping he wouldn't go too much into it because I was like, dang it, he's going to steal my thunder, but he left it <laughs> just at the right moment. So I was like, ooh, thank God. Okay? Verse 24, he drove out the man, Okay? And at the east of the Garden uh, of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. As Scott talked about, 
East is the entryway. That's how you go in and out of the sanctuary. And we see this play out in the tent of meeting and later on in the temple. And even in the vision that Ezekiel has, okay, the entryway is through the east. And Ezekiel sees something kind of vague in his vision. He says, there's this prince, a son of David, who's got special privilege and access, and only he can go in and out of that. Right? How? How can that be? Well, if you put everything together, verse 15, 21, and 24, you come up with the gospel message. We have lost everything. We're outside of Eden. Now we're faced with judgment. The thing that we did to ourselves, what hope is there? Well, God will send a champion who will crush the head of the serpent, and he will bring true righteousness on earth. He will make every wrong thing right by entering the temple once again, facing the sword of judgment, giving his life in our place so that through his death, we have life and access to the presence of God. That's why much later, at the end of the story as we know it in Revelation chapter 5, John speaks of the lamb who was slain. And the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain was divided into two. The thing that stopped us from entering into the presence of God, which at the time was a curtain, but before was this cherubim with a very scary sword, gone. And if you place your faith in Jesus, you have access to not only a Savior who defeats the great enemy, but one who will make every wrong thing right, even right now. And you begin to walk with him in doing and living out this project of placemaking, not only in your own heart, where it becomes suitable for him to dwell, but even in this city, so that we see more and more and more of God's will being done here in Washington as it is in heaven. Let me just say, in closing, to Christians, you know, we talk about not placing God-like expectations on any other individual because if you do, you'll crush them because no one can take the place of God. Let me gently say to you, don't put God-like expectations on the city. The city is not your savior, your career, okay? your political affiliation. None of these things will save you. When you see the brokenness of the city, you shouldn't be surprised. It is life outside of Eden after all. Instead of fleeing it, I hope you'll run to it. Because you, Christian, you have the only message of hope to turn this broken place into a home so that people here in the city would experience the righteousness of God. And remember, when you live out the gospel in winsome ways, you embody Christ and his message. I trust that those out there will hear, they will see glimpses of Eden echoing through your life. We believe that, don't we? Sure, we're broken, but not completely and utterly. 
and everyone out there in the city still remembers what home is like, even though they've never been there. And so as God's people, let's press on, and let's keep on leaning into this city. And we don't have to do great things overnight to turn this whole thing around by tomorrow. No, it's in the slow, everyday, invisible things that God brings his kingdom. That's how the kingdom works, doesn't it? So if you don't see the fruit tomorrow morning, don't be discouraged. And if you see another headline out there about what's wrong with the city, don't run away from it. Lean in. Love and care for the people. Bring the kingdom with you. And through your life and faith, let others see the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time that we uh, could be in your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ and the mission that you've called us to, to live out this call to bring the kingdom here in the city. Lord, we need your grace. We can't do this by ourselves. And so, Lord, we ask for your strength now. Would you please do this in us first? that your kingdom will come in greater fullness in our hearts. And so as we lean into this world, that kingdom will spill out to relationships, to our neighborhoods, and to the workplace that you've called us to.